the great 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle, he wrote this about prayer. When we pray, we must never forget that the only reason God hears us is because Jesus, our mediator and advocate, intercedes for us at that very moment. He hears us not because of how well we pray. He hears us not based on the content of our prayer. He hears us not based on how good or not good you perceive yourself to be at this thing called prayer. He hears us ultimately because Jesus is our mediator. He's going between us and God. He is our advocate. Speaking for us to God the Father. And He is making it possible at that very moment when you pray for your words to get past the ceiling, to get past all obstacles and get right into the heart of God. So it is true. And if you can remember back eight sermons, that was the first truth that we thought about in this series on prayer. Prayer, which is a a conversation, or I like to use the word communion, is fellowship. Prayer, which is conversation with God, it is made possible by Jesus Christ because we cannot get to God without our sins being forgiven. So in Ephesians 2.18, Paul writes, For through Him, that is Jesus, we both, Jews, Gentiles, have access in one Spirit to the Father. And to Timothy, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the mediator. So this morning, as we end this series on prayer, I'd like to end where we began, thinking again about the implications of this access that we have to God the Father in prayer. And rather than reusing Ephesians 2.18, that was the very first one that we looked at, I've chosen a similar text. It is one that highlights the value of our access to God. Let me read that passage again. Before opening this sermon in prayer. Hebrews 4. Verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest. Who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted. As we are yet without sin. Let us then. And here is a description of prayer with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive 
mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Will you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, through Jesus, we come to you now and ask that you would enlarge our hearts and enlighten our minds and move our wills in order that we would love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. It's just the wind back there. Hebrews chapter 4. I hope this sermon series has been helpful for you. I hope it's answered some questions about prayer. I hope that it's encouraged you to pray more, encouraged you to pray in different ways. I know it's been helpful for me. Since we're wrapping this series up, I would like to summarize all that we have learned so far by just repeating the main points of each sermon. For time's sake, I won't give biblical references here, but you can go back and listen to any one of these sermons. Here are eight summarizing statements of what we have learned in this series on prayer. Number one, prayer is Christ-enabled conversation with God. Number two, when we pray, Jesus calls us to be sincere and straightforward. Third, when we pray, we should address God as our Father in heaven, because that is exactly who He is. Fourth, when we pray, it is good to begin with praise and thanksgiving. Fifth, when we pray, our wants and our desires must be surrendered to the will of God. Number six, when we pray, we should present all our needs to God, including our most basic physical needs. Number seven, when we pray, we should seek forgiveness. And eighth, finally, when we pray, we must look to God for guidance and deliverance. And now today, we look to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, where again, we find highlighted the inestimable value of our access to God in prayer. So let's read this one verse at a time, beginning with verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I think ordinarily, when this verse is explained, the emphasis is put on the ability Jesus has to relate to you and to sympathize with you when you are going through your own temptations. 
But I don't think that's actually the emphasis of this verse. The emphasis is that Jesus has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet he was without sin. That's the point of verse 15. That's what makes him the high priest, and I'll explain that, that he is, is that he has been tempted in all of these different ways, and the devil has thrown his very best at him, and Jesus has resisted. He has been without sin. So this letter was written to Hebrews, to Jewish Christians, that is, and there are Words here that, that they would have understood right away, but for many of us, we, we need them explained. Jesus is our high priest. He is our high priest who was and is without sin. That is what we're told in verse 15. Before Jesus could read about this in the Old Testament of your Bible, God's people had a human high priest. God's people always had a human high priest. And he would regularly offer up sacrifices to God to atone for the people's sin. He would do this over and over and over again. These sacrifices would be made because there was a cost and it was blood for the people's sin. But this high priest, though he was a mediator between man and God, he was obviously, because he was always a man, he was an imperfect mediator. Well, Jesus, he is the new and perfect high priest. He was and is without sin. Therefore, he alone was qualified to offer himself on the altar as the perfect sacrifice. Not an imperfect mediator offering up imperfect sacrifices, but now a perfect mediator between man and God who could lay himself on the altar. And offer himself as a perfect sacrifice, paying the price for our sin in full so that we could be forgiven. And forgiven is a means to something greater so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. A few chapters later in Hebrews 7.25, this is made very clear. He, Jesus, He, this high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is our high priest and He has brought us to God. Jesus has not merely saved us from hell. He has brought us to God. Incidentally, 
This is why many Christians end their prayer by saying something like, In Jesus' name, amen. James 13, 14 says, You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray through His mediation. In in Jesus' name, typically we end our prayers by saying that. In other words, everything I just said, I am bringing it to you, God, in the name of Jesus, through Jesus, understanding Hebrews 4.15, that He is my mediator. He is my high priest. He is the one who opens your heart to me by granting this forgiveness of sin. Or if you noticed, when I opened this sermon in prayer, I said, Father in heaven, we come to you now in Jesus' name. End, beginning, whatever. But we're saying that these words that we are praying... They are getting to you, God, we know, through Jesus. He makes it possible for us to speak to God. And now verse 16. It is our resulting response. Because Christ has opened the door to God, here is how we respond. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has opened the door, verse 15, and so we enter in, verse 16. We draw near to the throne of grace. We draw near to God. This describes a personal relationship. This describes intimacy. You do not draw near to people that you don't have a relationship with. At least you shouldn't. Most of you wouldn't. You draw near and come in close to those whom you have a personal relationship with. Jesus has made it possible for us to have this relationship with God, to approach Him. And to speak honestly to Him. And to speak plainly to Him without fear. And so, in His presence then, as we draw near to God, according to verse 16, what does God give us? Look at verse 16. What is it, as we draw near to God, that He gives us two things, mercy and grace? So because through Christ we have access to God in prayer, we can boldly and freely draw near to Him and receive from Him. So you see, we draw near to God. We go to God to be in His presence. This is a place, a throne of grace. So it is describing coming into the presence of God to then receive His mercy and grace. That 
is a very different way to think about prayer. And it doesn't seem to be the most common way to think about prayer. The most common way to think about prayer, especially unbelievers, but even believers, is to take your list, right? And to bring that list to God and then to rattle off this list of God. And it's typically things that you want God to do and things that you want God to change. And in times where you're desperate or in times where you feel more in need, your prayers heat up. Even to the point where those who don't even believe in God or don't have any kind of a relationship with Him, even they will pray and cry out to God when the heat gets turned up. But this is very different. Thinking of prayer as drawing near to God to be in His presence to receive mercy and grace. That means that we come to God in prayer primarily to relate to Him. And for Him to relate to us. We don't use God to change our circumstances. We relate to God as the source of mercy and grace. We draw near to Him. Isaiah 64, 7 puts it this way, to take hold of Him. Think about your prayer life. Think about your prayers. Think about how you pray. Isaiah 64, 7 describes it as taking hold of God. That is, drawing near to the throne of grace, relating to Him, intimacy with Him, time with Him, receiving from Him mercy and grace. That is the goal of prayer in this case, not actually changing circumstances. Timothy Keller wrote in his book on prayer, Paul does not see prayer as merely a way to get things from God, but as a way to get more of God himself. This is a different way to think about prayer. Paul Miller, in his book on prayer, writes, Jesus' example teaches us that prayer is about relationship. When he prays, he is not performing a duty. He is getting close to his Father. As you read Paul's prayers in the New Testament, there's a lot of them. Go back and read them. As you read Paul's prayers in the New Testament, it is startling to me how little he asks God to change a circumstance. More than praying for God to reorder people's lives, the prayer is that God would reorder people's loves. Are my prayers focused on asking God to reorder my life? Or are they focused on asking God to reorder my loves? Is it reorder my life? God, do this, do that. God, change this, change that. God, can you come through here? Can you do this this way? Can you keep this? Can you bring this? 
reorder my life? Or is it, God, can you give me mercy? Give me grace? Can you, God, change my heart? God, help me to prioritize my life? Reorder my loves and my affections? Here's just one example. When it came to the Philippians, there are many circumstances Paul could have asked God to change. And yet, listen to how Paul prayed in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may be able to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's asking God to reorder their loves, not their lives. Now, obviously, I just want to make a note. We ask and should ask God to do things. Even as we read and studied the Lord's Prayer, it is obvious that we are to do that. You can and should talk to God about anything and everything. Philippians 4, 6, you should present all your requests to God. We've learned that we should be sincere with God and open our heart to Him and be straightforward to God. But understand, this is what this means, what you really need from God is God. What you really need from God is not Him to change this and to change that. What you really need from God is God. And so prayer primarily is drawing near to God to relate to Him as intimately as we can to receive His mercy and grace. He is not a vending machine where we just enter in the buttons and pull the lever to get, hopefully, what we want to get. Now, if that is your image of God, then you will say things like, prayer does not work, which many people say. But if your understanding of prayer is that I am to come into the presence of God and to look to Him and to relate to Him, then prayer works. So we look to God this way in prayer. I'll give you an example. Personally, on Thursday morning, something was going on in my head and I was discouraged and I couldn't figure out why. Or I should say, I couldn't figure out if it was one particular thing or not. There were lots of things that I was upset about, discouraged about, feeling low about. And I needed, you know, I realized this like 10 o'clock in the morning. I needed to pray. Meaning based on what I was studying and what we're talking about today, I needed communion with God. I needed not, I wasn't thinking Him to change this and to change that, I needed to be with Him. So by God's grace, this isn't always possible, but I was able to have 10, maybe 15 minutes. It was quiet. And I went through my concerns and my worries and my 
anxieties and I remembered God's word and it was exactly what I needed. And I was in a better place by God's grace after I had spent those moments with him. But I tell you what, nothing in my life had changed. Nothing. You know, sometimes you hear the stories, I prayed this and that, and then the phone rang right before I said amen. And God had answered the prayer. Well, it didn't happen. I don't know, that rarely happens in my life. It just doesn't happen all that often that I see visibly and obviously how God answers a prayer specifically. I hear stories about that. It doesn't happen in my life a lot. But after relating to God and communing with Him, that's exactly what I needed. So, that's a summary of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Because of Christ, we can draw near to God, commune with Him, and receive mercy and grace. So you see, these verses are highlighting the inestimable value of this access that we have to God in prayer. I mean, I think it would be a big deal to be invited to the White House. I'm not a big fan of our president. I won't say anything else about that. But I still think it'd be a big deal to get invited to the White House and meet someone with that kind of power and authority. That'd be an amazing thing. Well, we are invited and the door has been opened to God's throne of grace. And we can whenever, wherever we want, we have access to the living God who rules and reigns over all things. And that is of inestimable value. And we're reminded of that in those two verses. So with that understanding, that we can and should without fear draw near to the throne of grace. I want to devote the next few minutes of this sermon, the rest of it, to practical application. For this series, I read a lot of books on prayer, and one of my favorites was a classic by Matthew Henry. It's called A Method for Prayer. And in that book, he said something in light of this text that struck me. And it was basically this. If we can draw near to the throne of grace, if we can do this, what we're talking about in this text, if we can draw near to the throne of grace, why would we ever want to leave? In other words, Matthew Henry felt the goal should be to draw near to God in prayer and somehow, some way, stay there. That that should be the goal of the Christian. To draw near to the throne of grace in prayer and somehow, some way, stay 
in God's presence all day, every day. Doesn't that sound amazing? He wrote this. We need not wait until heaven to enjoy God. What is heaven but an everlasting access to God? And present access is a pledge of it. The life of communion with God and constant attendance upon Him is a heaven upon earth. So the goal should be to draw near to God and stay there, to have this constant attendance upon God. He describes it as waiting upon God, a life of communion with God. That is and that would be heaven on earth. Where we're accessing God and in somehow, some way, praying to Him and communing with Him all day, every day. That helps us to understand some texts in the Bible that seem to at least hint at this. Ephesians 6, 16 and following is one. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times. How do you do that? Especially if you're a terrible multitasker. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Perhaps John 15, 4, abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. That is this, as Matthew Henry describes it, this constant attendance, this communion with God, fellowship with God. And certainly, I heard someone say it, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. The ESV Study Bible explains that verse this way. I think it's right on. And I think it's what Matthew Henry is advocating. Pray without ceasing suggests a mental attitude of prayerfulness. It doesn't mean that you become a monk and you travel up into the mountains somewhere and you isolate yourself from everything and everyone and you're on your knees all day praying without ceasing. That's not what it means. A mental attitude of prayerfulness, continual personal fellowship with God and consciousness of being in His presence throughout each day. So how do we do that? How do we pray at all times? How do we pray without ceasing? How do we draw near to God and stay near? Well, that is a main point of Matthew Henry's book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But in it, he gives a very practical method. Let me give you the three points of his book, and I'm going to borrow those for the conclusion of this sermon. It's very simple. Number one, begin each day with God. Number two, spend each day with God. Number three, end each day with God. That's very clear. Not easily done. We need grace to do this. But number one, begin each day with God. That's common sense, I think. For most of you, unless you work nights or something like that, the morning, it marks the beginning of your day. 
The morning marks the beginning of your day. And so for the person desiring to commune with God all day long, it's essential that you begin each day with God. Exodus 29.39 tells us that the priests would offer a sacrifice to God every single morning. In 1 Chronicles 23.30, we learn that the Levites would sing thanksgiving to God every single morning. Psalm 5.3 says, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. Matthew Henry writes, God requires our first fruits. Therefore, we should give him the first part of our day. God deserves our best, not just leftovers of the day when we are tired and worn out. In the morning, we are most free, most of us, in the morning, we are most free from company and business and ordinarily have the best opportunity for solitude. We have to train ourselves to have the first thoughts of the day be about God. It's difficult. What pops into your mind the moment you're conscious in the morning? Are you thinking about the day before? Are you thinking about the day ahead? Or are you thinking about God? John Bunyan famously said, he who runs from God in the morning seldom finds him the rest of the day. And many of you have found that to be true. Psalm 88, 13, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Psalm 143, 8, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. So this isn't saying for those of you who are not morning people, that you need to get up like my wife at 4 a.m. every morning and read the Bible and pray. But it does mean that we could and should train ourselves to begin our day focused on God. To begin each day with God. Number two, spend each day with God. Psalm 25, 5. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. So to start our days in communion with God is one thing, but this, I think, is most difficult. Once we get going, and once we're working, and once we're active, and once we're relating to others and consumed with the thoughts and worries of the day, actually spending the day with God, how do we commune with God throughout our day? Our goal is to walk in God's presence. Our goal is to be conscious of Him all day and to be speaking to Him all day. And this takes time and this takes discipline. Don't be discouraged if you are not there yet. The biggest obstacle here is probably busyness which in my opinion seems to be the most common obstacle that 21st century Americans face today. I'm so busy. That's not a new problem. 
In fact, in 1665, Thomas Brooks, in his famous book on prayer, The Secret Key to Heaven, he devoted an entire chapter. The chapter was called, An Objection Stated and Answered. We are too busy to spare time for private prayer. It's not a new problem, but it's a problem. The thinking goes like this. I'm just too busy throughout the day to pray. When biblically the reality is I'm too busy what? Not to pray. If I truly understand what prayer is, if I truly understand how important it is, this doesn't mean that you need to find throughout the day a quiet place. For some of you, that's impossible, especially you moms with little kids at home. It doesn't mean you've got to find a quiet place and that you've got to find a quiet time over and over again. The timer goes off and you separate yourself and the TV goes on or whatever it looks like. I've got to have my 10 minutes here or my 15 minutes here. But it does mean, this is what it means. It means looking to God over and over and over. Listen, sometimes the prayer and the looking to God is as simple as help. Maybe my most common prayer. Thank you, probably most common. And then help. Just throughout the day. I wonder how many times in my head and heart I cry out the word help in any given day. It's looking to God. It's conscious of Him. Think about the thoughts and the feelings that fill your days and how they can be bent up to God in prayer. Are you burdened? Are you worried? Are you fearful? I'm usually all of those at some point in the day. But what do I do? Do I think more about this thing that I'm worried about? I mean, how much time do I even spend trying to wrestle with it and figure it out? And how quick am I to take the opportunity and commune with God while I'm doing whatever I'm doing to acknowledge God, to go to Him that I may receive the mercy and the grace that I need? Are you grateful for something? It's an opportunity to look to God. Are you being tempted? Look to God. Are you suffering? Look to God. Are you thinking too much about your past? Look to God. Are you thinking too much about the future? Look to God. Every minute, this is the point, every minute of every day contains reasons to look to God. Are you working? What does God say about your work? Are you resting? What does God say about rest? Are you reading a book? Are you spending time with friends? Are you golfing? Are you fishing? Whatever it is that you are doing, look to God. Look to God. Look to God. Look to God. And that is practically how we may spend each day with God. And finally, in conclusion, number three, end each day with God. We end the day the way we began the day. As your day comes to a close, it 
quite naturally promotes reflection. Unless you just pass out. If it's some sort of a stop, lay down, I'm going to bed now, it lends itself to reflection. Maybe you think about the day ahead, but many of you think about the day that's done. That can lead to confession, asking God to forgive you. It can lead to thanksgiving and praising God for all that he was and all that he did the day that just ended. Matthew Henry recommended this prayer. Oh, that when I awake, I may still be with God. That the parenthesis of sleep, though long, may not break off the thread of my communion with him, but that as soon as I awake, I may resume it. We begin the day, we spend the day, we end the day with God. We understand the inestimable value of this access that we have to God in prayer. And so we look to grow in our ability to have fellowship with him in prayer without ceasing. So let me close by, I hadn't planned to do this, but Lindsay picked a great song and it mentions so many ways that we look to God throughout our day in prayer. And this is what a friend, let me read you the three verses. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son Jesus, our Lord and Savior, to give us access to you. Thank you, God, that though once we were alienated from you, now we have been brought near to you. You have adopted us into your family and you have brought us into your home. And God, we wander and you invite us and call us over and over again to draw near, to draw near. So help us, we pray. Help us to remember you throughout our days. Help us to look to you throughout our days, that we would be constantly attending to you, constantly abiding in you, constantly praying, communing with you until that day when this communion 
will be secured forever. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.